the Into the Wilderness podcast, and I'm one of your hosts, Byron Pace. My partner in crime, my brother, who's normally also here for the intro, isn't here this week, but he is in the body of the show, because yesterday morning he flew out to Austria to film a chamois hunt for the rest of the week, so I have been left to do the intro by myself. Uh, when he comes back and we put out the next show, we'll have a chat about his experience and what it was like, because he has never been and neither have I actually, to Austria hunting chamois before. So it's going to be a new experience, uh, much in the same way as we gave you a little recount of his time doing some photography on the moose hunt in Norway. So I'm quite looking forward to that, actually. We've got a double show for you today. Not just one set of guests, but two sets of guests. So first up, we're going to bring uh, you a podcast that we actually recorded in March this year, uh, back at the Iwa show, but we weren't allowed to release it because it talks about Wild Boar Fever 9, which at that point hadn't been released. So we had to wait for Wild Boar Fever 9 to be up on M the MOTV platform before we could release this podcast. Now, it was actually released now maybe two months back. Uh, so we are bringing you an interview with Jim Shockey and Franz Albrecht. Most people will know Jim Shockey, uh, because of the sort of the fame in the hunting world that he has, and he's also been on this podcast before. And France has become incredibly well known around the world because of his incredible shooting skill, uh, as is showcased in the Wild Boar Fever movies. So we talk to France and Jim about um, the MOTV TV platform, the kind of content that's on there, and how they see that sort of shaping. Uh, the world of fil film content in the hunting space going forward. Uh, so it's just a short conversation of about 15 minutes. And then we go rather appropriately, actually, that I managed to tag these two together because we're talking a lot about film uh, with Franz and Jim. Uh, but then we go into an interview with uh, Brother Film. Now, we don't have the whole complement of Brother Film on the podcast, but we have two of the team which is Marcus and Hugo, and they come on basically to talk about starting their company, their history, why they went into film, their training, or in this case, sort of lack of training, and how they managed to make a success out of something that they were passionate about. Uh, go and have a look on YouTube and Vimeo at Brother Film and see some of the productions that they've been involved in. Uh, they're not really in the outdoor space specifically uh, but it is just such a high level of output it's massively impressed us over the years they've worked from from people um, like Red Bull to more recently National Geographic they did the um, Neptune Steps which we actually talk about in this podcast which is a a swimming and obstacle race in Glasgow, which is just truly epic. And if you go and watch that short film, it's it's only about three or four minutes long. You'll see the sort of the slickness of the operation. And I think 
we talk about it in here as well, but they turned that around within a matter of hours. So an incredible team, really interesting people to speak to, and a company that we've taken a lot of inspiration from as filmmakers as well. So it was great to sit down and have a chat with, chat with, um, a chat with some of the team. We have a competition winner to announce from two weeks ago. Uh, we had a Reloading with Rosie mug up for grabs. And all we wanted you to do was share the post or tag a friend. It was as simple as that. It ran on Instagram and it ran on Facebook. And I randomly selected one before I started recording the intro. Um, and the winner was Matthew Potter. So congratulations, Matthew. All you have to do is contact the show, send us a message on any of the social medias, or feel free to email us. The email will be um, at the bottom of the description for this podcast. We also have a new competition for this week's podcast, and we're giving away the latest edition of the Hornady Reloading Manual. It is the reloading manual that I use myself, and it pretty much has every cartridge that you could possibly want to load for in it. And of course, being the latest edition, not only does it have the latest cartridges like the Creedmoor range, it also has workups for the latest powders as well. So it is the perfect thing to win before Christmas, either for yourself or for someone else. And it's going to be very simple. All we would like you to do is leave us a review please pretty please uh, because it really helps us in the rankings at, to get the podcast seen <clears throat> the only podcast app that i don't think you can leave a review on is actually spotify i don't think there's a mechanism to allow you to do that yet so if you listen on spotify please just go over to one of the other apps um, like itunes if you're an apple user or stitcher if you're an android user and go and smash the big fat five star rating and leave us a quick comment and we will pick someone who has commented uh, who's left a review since this podcast came out and one of you will be a lucky winner of the hornady reloading manual and the last thing to mention before i let you get into the guts of the show is if you haven't already go over and check out our website at thepacebrothers.com on there on the shop you will see that we have just released a limited edition number of prints from some of our photography over the last two years. They've been selling really well. We have uh, limited numbers of volume one of Modern Huntsman left here uh, in the UK for our European shipments and volume two has arrived. So everybody who had pre-ordered volume two will either have it or will be getting it in the next day or two. And if you would like volume two or volume one for Christmas, uh, we have them in stock. They're sitting up in our office. So go over to the shop and get that order in. The last day date for delivery before Christmas will be on the website, but don't delay, go and do it now so that you are not disappointed. There is also the usual uh, other merch that we have on there. Our coffee mugs, our two different blends of coffee, and of course our t-shirts as well. If you are interested in what Jim and Franz are about to talk about uh, as they're discussing MOTV, just give MOTV a Google and you will find it. Right now there is a seven-day free trial. So it'll give you seven days to browse around, have a look at the content. I would direct you towards um, Jim's Uncharted series, uh, I'd start right, right at the start. Series 1 is just truly epic. 
There's also um, Ivan Carter has a show on there called Carter's War. He talked about it on a podcast probably more than a year ago now. And there is also an increasing amount of European content on there as well. So if you're someone who maybe looked at it um, living in the UK or in Europe a year, year and a half ago and were disappointed by not seeing rodeo stalking and stalking for stags and other European species that, that we're more used to hunting, that is now on there. Um, so go and give it another look um, if you have already looked at it in, in the past. And then there is a monthly subscription after that. And I think that is it for this, um, well, for me, giving you the intro by myself. Uh, when you hear from us again, it will be the, I'm not sure actually if we're going to put out another show before Christmas. No, we will. We will put out a kit show before Christmas. Probably my brother talking about this trip that he's just been on. And then we always try and give you a sort of a rundown of what we've been using throughout the year. So we'll probably put that out next week. That will be, we will endeavor to do that. Um, a short show about kit and probably a bit of news next week. And then we are going to have a bit of a break and give you guys all a bit of a break from us. And then bring you our first show in the early part of January. Because we all know that as you get up to Christmas... Between Christmas and New Year, it's family time. You're probably trying to do a bit of hunting, Boxing Day shoots, and all that good stuff. So you're not listening to podcasts, which is absolutely fair enough. So we will bring you a great podcast at the start of January. But make sure you tune in for the show that we put out next week. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on the Into the Wilderness podcast today. This has come at a really great time where hunting is going globally. Here we have uh, what we're here to talk about today is, is, is a platform where hunters can go and watch and absorb great content. And at a time where there is so much to take in, it's kind of hard to know where to go to find great content. We've got some European content going across to North America, North American content now being available across here in Europe. Tell me a little bit what that journey has been like, Jim, for you. Well, I mean, I'm... I'm really excited about it because it communication is is so important when there's an ocean between us and i had no idea about the european style of hunting and the traditions of hunting and and i mean the skill that it takes to do what franz does shooting these wild boars i i mean i i can't do it and i didn't even know it existed so i i love the idea that finally we have a, a global community that we can be part of the motv it's it's gonna it's gonna create I, I think more and better relations around the world it, between hunters but also just between different cultures okay, an understanding across cross cultures very important and, and france what about what about for you i mean for me just to be able to have to have the first glance of what motv is about over the last few months and to get to know some of the traditions and cultures that are going on in the u.s that i've never even heard of um, and also um, looking over to New Zealand and, and Africa and, and Australia, um, it has completely opened a new world for me that I would have—I don't think I would have ever dipped into uh, if it weren't for MOTV. So for me, I'm, I'm more of a European-type hunter. I have gone across uh, to other continents once or twice in my life, but I'm sort of focused on a certain amount of species 
and, and a certain culture and tradition of doing things. But to be able to see what Jim does and where you have been with your series uh, Uncharted, has it, it's opened a new dimension of what the possibilities are and what there is to experience. Um, and it's not it's not just to hear it in stories, but to see it in pictures uh, brings it alive in a way... Um, yeah, that I, 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 I've never seen anything like that or I didn't know that things like that existed. Um, so for me, it's an experience that I think will be incredibly successful across all different types of hunters or even just people who are outdoorsmen and fishermen and, 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 and guys who love the outdoors. Yeah, I think you, even the non-hunting public, I think, will yeah. be... I think that's important as well. Really important. They'll realize that this goes on and they the quality of the programming is is i think one of the greatest draws you can waste your life away on youtube trying to find yep. one clip that had any higher sensibilities in it uh, you know anything that would actually teach there is a you. lot of junk out there yeah yeah that's the problem <laughs> yeah. it, 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 the world is full of of substandard quality images that that you, know, you got to sort through who wants to do that motv has already done all that you you have the best of the best from around the world i can watch Wild boar fever, I know it's going to be the best quality. I'm not going to waste my precious time watching garbage or clicking through crap. It's suddenly there's there's quality right across the board. Fourteen thousand different episodes and exclusivity. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's time has come and thank goodness for MOTV. Uh, it it was one of the things that totally blew me away when I first saw your Uncharted series, however many years ago that actually first came about. And, and credit to to your son, who I know was a, a massive part of that. The storytelling in that and the quality of production, I think, is what is making um, series like that accessible for people who are possibly not hunters as well. Uh, where do you see that dynamic going between the kind of content that we produce and how? You might you can get people dipping into it who might never have seen that way of life before. Oh, I'm I I think we've got a way to reach into every single person's household in the world right now. You know that's that access has been controlled by big networks, and and that means some executive in New York City is making a decision about what people get to watch. Now they don't have to listen to what he thinks they want to watch, they can watch what they want to watch. So I believe that MOTV will bring the viewers away, take the viewers away from those networks that are providing, you know, I mean, I guess the Kardashians is worth watching and Honey Boo Boo. Is it? Uh, I mean, I, well, I, I don't know. To, I, the, the That's executive, not the first time I've heard you mention Honey Boo Boo, so I oh, think you do watch that. Oh, it just, it, it, you know, I'm sorry, I cringe every time I, you know, these shows that are on there, these guys think that's what people want to watch. Yeah. It's not what they want to watch. But MOTV, I guarantee they'll want to watch when they when they find out about it. So I, I think we're going to actually take non-hunting viewers away from the major networks and, and bring them to MOTV. It's better programming, better programming. And the great thing is the people who will come in and watch it, they will have hunting and everything that goes with it put into context by people who are actually doing it, who are out in the field and who, I mean, like, Jim, you've been out there for... hundred years. Go hundred ahead, say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go, go ahead. Let me years. fill in the words for you. <laughs> and you've been in, in, in so many different countries and you explain so well the kind of what, you know, how the circle closes on a certain country and a certain animal that you're after, um, how the people uh, around 
that animal live there and and help you with the hunt, etc. So putting that into context is so important. And there's really not that many other places where you can get that. And I think that's what people are looking for. They want to understand more about it. And this will be the, this is just one of the reasons why MOTV will be successful. But this is this will be the go-to place to put everything that has to do with hunting around the world into context for people who are interested. Yeah, tell the whole story. And where we're we're sitting as hunters, as a, a sort of global hunting community, if we look at the slightly the the bigger picture, just not necessarily just film. Where do you see the the future of hunting going, or where do you hope it's going to go? We're in a fairly precarious position in certain countries around the world. I understand that's a very difficult question, but I don't know two people probably better to shed some light on that. Yeah, Jim, if you I, want to pick I, up, well, I, you know, I mean, the wildlife around the world is is in a war for its very existence, and, and you know, I'm, I don't mean in places like here in Europe. You've got a good control on your wildlife. You're biologically uh, balanced. You know, hunting and and con- your conservation is time proven. In North America, we have a great model for for the wildlife, but there's so many parts of the world where you know wildlife is under is under duress and under attack. And I, you know, and, and the problem is that people that don't understand hunting because they've never had it explained to them, like you were just saying, friends, and in, in this. That you know, the kill is this much. That's what they focus on in the popular press, and they vilify us and marginalize us by saying, you know, this is all hunting is. They just want to kill. No, that's not true. Hunting is all of this, including conservation, the economic benefits in these these communities. So, uh, you know, I, I I think wildlife's under attack right now, and hunters are are truly the only hope in many of those places around the world. And I. And I, I just know we, we have to win the fight. As we're being attacked, we, we just can't ever back down and apologize for doing what we do because we're the only hope for the wildlife in, in many of those places. And, and, and I think with MOTV now, we can tell the rest of the story to, you know. Because it is about storytelling. And do you think we'll see an increase in, in video content through MOTV that is about the storytelling and the bigger picture, like like your series has been. I, I hope so. I, I mean, I hope we've set an example and a standard that I think that will have. be followed. And, and, you know, I know you do it on yours, and, and I, I believe the videographers coming forward, producers, will will also do do the same thing, tell the rest of the story. And, and what about from, from your point of view, Fran? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult to generalize where hunting will go worldwide because you have so many it's different, so different right? yeah, yeah. so many different places. So I guess in some places it's probably going to diminish and and things are going wrong, like Jim was saying. And in other places, maybe uh, it will even become better, whatever that means. But in general, uh, and I think you mentioned this before, Jim, is that uh, one of the, the the positive outcomes of MOTV and connecting all the hunters around the world could be that we'll become a force. Uh, not only regionally, uh, as we are right now, fighting for certain things happening in a certain area, but together uh, we could make something happen worldwide that would help uh, hunting and conservation um, everywhere. And I think that would be a wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think there's a good chance that that will happen. Yeah, we'll we'll be stronger globally. Our message will be disseminated in a better way. So I, again, MOTV, it's it's the future. Uh, I, I agree. The more understanding that we have of the different ways that we do things around the world, it's we're normally pointing in the same direction, but we 
might do things differently and understanding that and being able to explain that within your culture what someone's doing in North America and the reasons why they're doing it is important. Yeah, as long as I never have to wear like a tweed coat. (laughs) 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 It'd be a little disingenuous if I actually (laughs) don one. But, I uh, think you'd look rather fetching in a tweed coat. I'm sure it can be arranged I, for you tomorrow. Know, I, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling the truth because I've got one in my uh, suitcase. <laughs> I'll be wearing one tonight at dinner. <laughs> okay, good. Gentlemen, I know we have to wrap up now, but thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to, to seeing what the rest of the content is going to be as, as the years come by. And anybody can Google MOTV and all the information will be there for them to sign up. And I think at the moment you can sign up and there's a, a free month as well. So you can go and dip in and see yeah, what it's all so about. Sooner the better. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Marcus Hugo, thank you for joining us on the Into the Wilderness podcast. Uh, We have followed your work for quite a few years now. Um, As filmmakers ourselves, it's, uh, you know, the the stuff that you guys have been putting out has been right up there in terms of aspirations as to the kind of quality of content uh, we want to achieve. So massive congrats on building out the business to where you have now and uh, and being involved in the projects that you've been involved in. But if we rewind back a little bit to so people can understand where you guys have come from. So you're you're two of two members of Brother Film Company. Uh but where did it start for you guys? I'm Marcus and we've got Hugo here as well. So that's two of the three original brothers that sort of started the company. Actual brothers. Uh, officially about Yeah, so three brothers. Um and we officially started the company six and a bit years ago. Um, but yeah, I think it's just unaf- past six, isn't it? Yeah, just our yeah. sixth sort of birthday last month. Um, but unofficially, we've sort of been making films uh, for something like 18 years. Yeah, must be about that now. Um, I think I was about 12 when we started sort of properly, and so Hugo would have been about eight. Um, that that's hardcore. Starting your filmmaking <laughs> yeah. career, eight years old. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was making yeah little um, skate films uh, with our dad's old VHS camera. It, it was um, harder back then. It was way harder. <laughs> it was yeah. We um the camera didn't even have a working battery, so we had to have it plugged into the mains all the time. <laughs> Extension cords uh, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So filming skateboarding with with that wasn't wasn't the easiest, but uh, it was a good start. I was going to say, so for, I mean, from uh, eight and twelve-year-olds filming skate films, that sort of primary primary school into into secondary school school. But at that point, had any of you realised that this is what we want to do? Because uh, I know that you know we speak to people um, all the time who that's it, it was a passion for them. Maybe you know as a youngster, and then they follow that sort of route that they feel that they need to take, which is to go to go to film school and do all that kind of formal education stuff in the filming world. It's not the route that we took because I didn't realize is what we wanted to do uh, when we were younger. So, what was the journey that you guys followed? I mean, it was always it was always a passion, um, but I think none of us really realized that it might be something that we want to properly pursue as a career until. Uh, much later, really. Um, I mean, none of us went to film school. None of us did any like formal education for filmmaking. Um, yeah, it's probably we, we all actually went to university and did things completely unrelated to filmmaking. Um, I did psychology, and then two years later, Luke went and did um, real estate. 
Uh, and then two years later, Hugo went and did music production. So that was so that's kind of related. Related. related, at least Slightly related, at least semi-relevant. Yeah. Um, but I think it was kind of during those university years that we we still ended up filming in our holidays. I started doing work experience, um, sort of making little videos for you know companies that our family knew, so making a little bit of money. And then I think it was probably then that we kind of figured that it could be a something we could do as a career. And at what point did you guys take the plunge? Because I know, I know for us there there was this this period when we set up our our film company that you know one of us was still working to try and support the company. And at some point you got to go both feet in and just and just do it because there's not enough time in the day. How did you get that balance? Because I know it's something that a lot of people ask us about in business in, in general. In, yeah, just generally yeah. in business. How how do you make that leap from? The day-to-day trudgery of your very, you know, average nine-to-five job to starting your own business when you're where you're all involved. Yeah. So initially, it was uh, it was just Luke who isn't here, um, but he finished uni. I think he he was applying for a few graduate jobs and just kind of realised that it wasn't really what he wanted to do. Um, he was still living at our parents' place, and so there kind of wasn't any um, well the risk of trying to. Um, kind of pursue filmmaking was pretty low at that point um, and Marx was working in a uh, it was a post-production place uh, doing some editing work at the time so it was kind of Luke that took the plunge first um, and any shoots that we had lined up kind of Marcus would help out if I had some time off uh, from uni I would go and help out on shoots and we kind yeah. of made it work for the first year or so that way yeah, I think it probably was about just under two years working like that. So, yeah, me and Hugo chip in whenever we could. I, I would do it after work when I got back in the evening. Um, and then eventually I managed to get quite a good deal with work where instead of getting a pay rise, I negotiated to do four days a week with them rather than five for the same pay. Um, so then I'd had a day a week then with Luke and we'd try and plan shoots around that day. So there's always two of us on the shoots and, you know, edit, edit scheduling, we could sort of manage around that. So that was a really good step, I think. Yeah, you just got to be prepared to kind of graft it out and just feel your way and do what you need to do to make it work. Yeah, totally. It took, yeah, a good couple of few years to properly get off the ground. It was definitely not a sort of instant thing. It was a very slow, gradual climb, I guess. Yeah, a lot of people think it's kind of a overnight success. It's an overnight thing that you can just jump into without realizing that actually, you know, there's a lot of unglamorous aspects when you're building out a business uh, to begin with to enable you to actually run it full time. We were actually um, talking last week. We were on the the Isle of Skye doing uh, a photo shoot and. Uh, we were saying when we first started the company, we're coming into our fourth year now, that when we first started doing stuff on the Isle of Skye, we slept on a barn floor to just do the job that we had to do because that was the way we had to do it. The second time we went back, we were on this really dank bothy that had water running down the back of it. It almost had more water inside than outside. (laughs) It was a couple of hundred years old, but, you know, you just do it. And then the last time, you know, a few years on now, we're actually in a hotel. (laughs) So, so, um, yeah, you just got to do what you got to do. You guys must have had similar sort of stories like that. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of unglamorous jobs um at the beginning i mean at the beginning they're pretty much all unglamorous (laughs) Um, 
so yeah, it, and I guess yeah, you can just sort of tell when you're you know getting those less often and having you know I think you can sort of tell that it's going in the right direction when you become I don't know more and more of your projects you're sort of really proud to put on your you know social media accounts and then you can kind of tell that you're doing something right I guess. Yeah. How did you sort of sharpen up? your skills your your video skills and your editing skills obviously there's a lot of learning by doing and you learn from your own mistakes but were you looking to anyone were you getting advice were you learning it online how did you guys shape that because you've set a very high bar where, where you are today uh, obviously we all we all improve as as time goes on but what sites did you have your what were you did you set your sites on um in terms of that i think uh a lot of it was just kind of using references and just kind of referencing from films on Vimeo that we kind of aspire to make and um, all from that part. Um, yeah, I think initially it was probably skate films. There, was, there were these skate films. Um, Ty Evans, he's a, like a skate videographer. He was producing some really like, some of the really like cinematic films um, using, I think at the time is using like dollies and mm. uh, I don't think gimbals were even around then, but using sort of high, much higher end cameras than any of the other skate guys were using at the time. And I think that sort of, that kind of style influences quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, nowadays it's more, yeah, like Vimeo staff picks. I've got a folder full of hundreds of those. <laughs> Inspiration. Yeah, definitely. Um, but in terms of learning skills, I think a lot of it was just practice, 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 really. I, as we mentioned before, before I joined full time, I was an editor for a different production company. So I was, I had two years of pretty constant editing five days a week um, for two years. So that I definitely learned a lot in that time just through trial and error, I guess. And um, they had some other freelance editors there. So I was able to pick up quite a few things from them as well. No, that that's really useful if you have the opportunity to work solid in for two years, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, that that is. I don't know if useful. I'd fancy editing every day for two years, though. <laughs> yeah, it was quite intense at points, and I, I was definitely glad to, uh, yeah, mix it up as much as I could with loop filming, and then eventually, like, sort of quitting that and starting up with Luke doing brother full time was, yeah, definitely a great day. At what point did you guys think you know what? we've made it now i know that the company is going to exist on into the future and it's just a case of us building out from from where we are what was the the sort of project that you landed and delivered and thought shit we've done it i think probably a big moment was um probably the first red bull event that we got which would have been um four years ago yes i think yeah um it was a rowing rowing event called Outrow. Red Bull Outrow. Um, but it was probably one of the first where we had kind of external freelancers. We brought them in to um, build out our crew and uh, we were kind of all staying in a hotel in Wales, Gloucester, Gloucester somewhere. Yeah, Gloucester. Um, but that felt kind of like quite a big step for us. Yeah, was, I think it was our first like, yeah, we had to get a bigger crew involved and the film ended up on the Red Bull UK site. And yeah, I think that was definitely the a bit of a changing point where yeah, you sort of thought, oh, like right, this, this is like a proper sort of company now kind of thing. I think the first, well, one of the first Red Bull films I saw that you guys had done 
was the Neptune Steps. Yeah, that, that one that, was brilliant. Yeah, absolutely awesome. It looked like an incredible event to be part of documenting. Because you did that in 24 hours. The Well, the first one you did anyway. Yeah, that was a really intense turnaround. Um, it's, it's always quite often the way with Red Bull that they want it the next, kind of the next day to... I think the first, the first couple were actually the same day. So we had to... I think the event was 10 a.m., finished at about 2, and they needed the full sort of review edit done by... They want it online at about 9, I think. That's mad. That's insane. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty intense. But, yeah, that was a really cool event. We've, I think we've done it three, three, three years, years, yeah. years of it. And, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Like um, Great location and really fun. Um, yeah, there's probably about a few of those that we ended up doing every year, and that kind of was a really good I don't know, base for what we... I know, just building up our sort of um, skills. What was the the external uh, skill sets that you brought in to help? That? I mean, how many people were involved in the in the Neptune Steps um, productions? I saw some pictures that you put out, I think, from last year, and it seemed like an an, an incredible crew. Um, I think most of those. Uh, so that, yeah, was, I guess last year. Uh, so now um, our sort of fourth guy, Adam, joined a bit uh, over a year ago now. So he would have been at the last one. So there's four of us full time. And then I think we'd brought in two or three yeah. other freelance camera operators in as well. Um, I think last year and the year before, I was editing full time in sort of the office, back office, because we had this same day turnaround. Uh, so there's probably five people filming. Yeah, I reckon about that. A producer and then me editing. How did you get... Did you start editing once you got all the content or did, were you having stuff fed to you sort of as the event was going on? It was uh, all we, fed, wasn't it? Yeah, it was all fed. So we'd, I think the day before that year, we'd uh, gone to, because it was set, all set in Glasgow, so we'd gone into Glasgow and got some establishing shots. So we'd laid all that in already. Um, and then as, yeah, as, as people came in, they'd dump their cards with us and pick up a new one. I'd offload that straight away and just, you don't have time to select or anything. So you just you're finding nice clips and just dragging them straight into the timeline. Uh, so sort of already had a structure in mind. So it was sort of dragging and dropping really into place. Ah, amazing! I mean, I saw that you've done such an, uh, a a quick turnaround for such a high quality of production. I couldn't quite work out how the hell you'd done it, but we were massively <laughs> impressed. Oh, cool! Thanks. Uh, tell us um, a bit about the Red Bull F1 um, films because I saw the one. With I think I think it was the manuf- uh, manufacturing of a bolt, and I thought that the idea behind that, looking at what was involved in this one tiny component, was just brilliant, and the way that that was sort of put together. I know you've put some uh, behind-the-scenes shots of um, passing gimbals through windows and that sort of thing. Yeah, that was um, I think to date that's probably one of our favourite films we've done. I think yeah, um, we yeah we've been involved with the Rebel F One guys for few years now and that was I think the second film we'd made for them and um, yeah we'd had a tour of their factory and we were sort of discussing with them ideas around making some stuff at the factory itself and we thought it was kind of a joint effort I guess between us and them how to sort of get across the fact that they manufacture basically everything on site and just the sheer amount of work that goes into every single part so we sort of yeah thought what is the simplest thing that they make um, and it happened to be this bolt, even though it's like goes through 
I don't even know how many I stages. Think it was, yeah, I think it was about 15 processes just to create it and test it and get it in the car. Um, so yeah, I think it was a two-day shoot, um, quite a lot of planning beforehand. Uh, we are using an Sony F55, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, and then we had, at the time, Movi M5 um, to do all the sort of gimbal stuff like floating through the spaces. Um, and then Hugo here composed this sort of classical, what was that, like orchestral sort of soundtrack? No, it's a piano, piano soundtrack, but um, yeah, just composed it kind of with that video specifically in mind just to kind of capture the Bolt's journey, I guess. It, it makes uh, the, the soundtrack that you pick for a piece of film makes such a massive difference to the mood and the feel. We, we often find that when you're having this conversation with clients that they don't fully appreciate just how important it is to get that aspect right. It must yeah, have been totally. incredible for you guys to have that skill set of being able to compose it from start to finish in-house. As, you know, There's not all that many, especially small companies, that can do that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a part that we, we're pushing quite a lot at the minute, just because... Um, we love your studio, yeah, I we mean, saw it. We, yeah, we yeah. totally agree. It, I think it makes such a big difference to have have the right song for each project, and it, it really kind of enhances the whole mood of the video. Yeah, I think you often find, when you're watching videos on, online, you, you're noticing the same library tracks over and over, because yeah. on, often on some of them, yeah, there are only a handful of really good tracks on there, so everyone's using the same ones. And hearing something that you've heard before, kind of, however good the filming and editing is, the song can affect everything. So, yeah, we try and make, it's probably about 90% of our projects are all created the music sort of in-house now. And we're also offering that now to other production companies. Um, so we've got a small library. There's nearly about 100 tracks now yeah. that, we, that we're offering out um, as a sort of alternative to those big, music library websites. So is that just uh, on, on a similar sort of basis, uh, uh, like a license fee where you can use it? Yes, yeah, so there's a couple of different options. So yeah, you can either just purchase a track from the library. Um, it's kind of a license for yeah, either online or TV or whatever. But then we also offer a bespoke service. Yeah, so you could, you could give like a reference of a song that you kind of want to... Um, imitate or just kind of a style and then yeah kind of create a bespoke song for that project a question we get quite a lot is what what do you do first do you are you creating the track are you creating the film and then building the the track into the film we've only had one real biggish project where we've uh, had the luxury of being able to sit down with someone who would write the music for us and it was the first time I, I'd done it that way around before uh, how do you how do you mix it up yeah we we always tend to edit with the song first so we'll get that in place and then create the video around that but um I've created a I've created a couple of soundtracks over the video um which is definitely a different process. It's definitely a different way of thinking, but um, yeah, I think both ways are. Yeah, I think with our own stuff, it's normally when we're, I guess, looking at references. You know, references for the filming and editing. We're also looking at music references for what kind of music we imagine would go well with for the video. And often Hugh will have that composed before we even shoot. Um, so it's often quite early in the process. Yeah. 
I guess it helps when you've got someone also in-house. So if it's not working, you can change something quite easily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the real luxury of it, I guess. You can just tweak bits and bobs. If you want to sort of, I don't know, a slightly bigger drop or a longer hold on the end frame, you can easily just tweak it. Yeah. How has the advancement of technology changed what you do? I mean, even since you've started your your company for real since day one you will have seen quite a big difference but considering you've been doing it since you were eight you will have seen a massive difference in technology it's just moved so fast it's all at some point it's almost hard to keep up with the changes that, that are occurring yeah massively i mean since we started it's kind of gone through the whole dslr era and then kind of drones have been introduced so our first drone um like I don't think gimbal technology had quite come around. So we just had kind of a GoPro strapped onto it and it was just the shakiest thing. <laughs> we remember. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, kind of gimbals came around and then drones have just kind of got to the point where it's just expected that you've got kind of a drone establishing shot in a video. Um, I think when we yeah. started, well, obviously we were just on mini DV tape after the VHS camera. Uh, I remember getting our first HD camera. Yeah. That was still on tape, I think. And then, yeah, yeah well, then we had, yeah, were in the SLRs for a few years. And I remember getting the Movi M5, and that was a real game changer when, when yeah. that came out. I think we had the first one in the UK, I think. I think so. Um, and yeah, we tried to get on the drone thing quite early on. So we had, yeah, had this enormous... Uh, eight rotor. Eight rotor thing that, <laughs> you know, was in the biggest flight case ever and it could fly for about five minutes before you need to change the battery. <laughs> how how times have of, moved yeah, on. GoPro 2 on it. So yeah, it was definitely a completely different world. And that was only about four years, five years ago. Yeah. Like you were saying, um, it's kind of expected to have a, a drone shot in, in every everything. Do you guys, you, obviously you're, you're watching everyone else's work. We tend to see sometimes now filmmakers being a little bit lazy where the drone is being i guess overused a bit like slow motion yeah just completely overused in the film and it's a bit of a a lazy way to to make a film in a way that still looks kind of good yeah we agree with that you definitely see it you know a drone establishing shot where it's just not necessary at all um we're definitely aware of it and we've been i don't know we we definitely like to only use drone where it it sort of actually will add something to it and will create a shot that's you know completely different and needed, I guess. I think also with gimbal, um, kind of everyone's got a gimbal these days, so a few projects will kind of choose to just have it handheld and have that shaky look and just to separate away from kind of the, the trend and the norms. Mm. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I saw the the recent film that you did for one of the music festivals and you filmed some of it on an old, was it an old 8 mil? Yeah, that was a Super 8 camera. It was incredible. Yeah, that's really fun. We got that a few months ago and we've used it on two or three projects now. And it's, yeah, it's so fun to use. It's you know, the complete opposite to, you know, the, all the other cameras we have. Um, it just the ease of use. You just chuck the film in, um, just press the trigger and all you have to do is focus and that's it. Is that it's, it? Yeah. Um, you, and you have, I think it's about three minutes per roll. So you and you've just got a little timer ticking down. So it's quite nice to be so careful about what you're shooting and 
you're so aware of how little sort of film you've got. Yeah. Because we're very, we're pretty spoiled these days. Whether it's taking stills, three four thousand raw images later, or your digital film, it doesn't really matter as long as you've got enough SD cards to offload it. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of the antithesis of that, which is actually quite nice sometimes. Yeah, how much does a roll of film cost? That's not something I've ever looked into. Uh, the roll is about thirty. It's kind of the whole process of buying the roll and then getting it developed. developed sure. I think it works out about a hundred pounds, doesn't it? Oh, so it's, yeah. it's not a. It's not something you just want to be snapping for for the sake of it. No, it's no, definitely, exactly. Definitely want to choose what, what project you're using it on and save. I think you're talking about Lost Village Festival. I was, yeah, yeah, did yeah, recently. Yeah. I think we used two rolls of film on that, so that was about two hundred pounds to do that. Um, but quite a lot of that, the six minutes of film that we got, actually made it into the final piece. That was. That was really cool. So uh, for value for money, it was worth it. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. I think it added quite a lot to the film and looked a bit different to your standard... Yeah, really well, unique. ...sort of 4K stuff you get now. What was the What's the digitization process like once you've got the film? So um, you, you, we have sent it off to a company. I think that it actually goes to Germany. Yeah, I think so. Gets processed and digitised there, and then they'll send it back, and it just comes as a... Um, so we transfer type file. I think it's a ProRes. So then you just stick it straight in your timeline. Um, it's always quite an exciting day when the file comes in to download. Yeah, <laughs> because there's no pre. You can't preview it like like you do on a digital camera. No, not at all. Yes, yeah, so you haven't. You've never seen the shot, and often it's a month later, so you can't even remember what you shot at all. So it's often a complete surprise when it comes in. That's pretty That's cool. Exciting. I like that. I like that. Now, I know we were just talking about drones, but I'm going to go back to them because it's actually a question we get so often. We get so many messages from people, emails, um, asking us, what you know, what, what drone should I buy? How are you filming this? And so on. What, yeah, I know you, you said you started with the, the big, um, well, it would be a eight-bladed um, drone, and now I know you've got the Inspire 2. Um, just can you go through the drones you've had and, you know, what's worked really well for you guys? We've, uh, we've always operated as like a two-person drone team, so we're actually quite restricted on the drones that we've used, so we kind of jump from the big six eight rotor ones which we had a gh3 and then gh4 um under and then we went kind of straight to the inspire um yeah with inspire one for two two and a half years and yeah. then about was it nearly a year ago or a year ago so yeah we got the inspire two um so yeah we've it's funny how you sort of we a few years ago we were using these massive things and we've sort of it's gone much much smaller which seems counterintuitive but yeah um, and then similar to that, I think, I mean, the Mavic Pro, I think we've, we're definitely eyeing it up to get at some point just as a quick thing that we can just always have and send it up quickly. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's the, the Mavic Pro is something that we use quite a lot. But if we had the choice, we wouldn't use it. But it's just because the locations, like you just said, yeah, throw, exactly. throwing up quickly. And particularly if we're on projects which involve really high mountainous terrain, you, it's impossible to carry an Inspire up with you. Even though yeah. the, the quality between even just the Inspire with the, the X5 camera and the Mav is like night and day. So it would be worth it for the Inspire shot, but it's just in a, in a weight sense. It's just not you can't do it. It depends on the project as well. I mean, if you... If you can hire an extra few Sherpas or something, <laughs> then 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think yeah, it all depends on the project. Earlier in the year, I think it was sort of from January till March, we were doing a six-part National Geographic sort of online series, and yeah, we were very restricted on crew for that. Um, so for a couple of the shoots, we had a really great uh, freelance videographer called Ed uh, Ed Fousset. Big up, Ed. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's literally just him and a producer. So he he had uh, his Phantom 4 Pro. I don't know if it was on his back or in a bag. I think, yeah, I think it was just strapped to his rucksack. So he had an FS7 and his drone, literally just him. And he just, he, he was able to take it up um, on top of cliffs and fly it himself. So it, it definitely depends on the project, what drone is sort of best suited, I guess. Do you, do you find uh, it's one thing that we, it kind of stresses us out is uh, operating a drone up here and and doing it legally, you know, having to go through your course, pay for your license, the insurance is expensive, and then you see a lot of filmmakers using them that you plainly know do not have a license to operate commercially. Does that does that frustrate you guys as well? Yeah, it's definitely frustrating, but I think it's just, I mean, it's it's just going to be a matter of time as people start to kind of understand all the laws and. Um, all the regulations that you do need to do. Yeah, I think it's still, I mean, it's such early days still that when you do buy a drone, say from, I don't know, from your... Asda. Asda, yeah, on the high school somewhere. <laughs> anywhere, yeah, anywhere, anywhere, yeah. You're not told at the time. It's quite hard. You're not told that you need a license to do it commercially. you sort of got to look it up and it's even then it's quite complicated. Yeah. So I think it's still such early days that it's kind of too early for people to know you know, similar to, I don't know, maybe in a few years it will be, I mean, I imagine it's going to be clamped down on quite a lot in the next few years. Yeah, I expect um, so. I think we'll probably in five years look back and think how sort of primitive it was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they they shut it down pretty quickly in America. And I always, when we look at things, if they do it in America, they tend to do it here not too long after. And, you know, they managed to do it easily by a firmware update in all the DJI drones, which basically meant that you had to put in your license number for it to even take off. And that's basically what they did in America. Yeah, yeah I can imagine that happening here for sure. Yeah. Pretty soon. So what does your day-to-day equipment list look like um, today? Um, so yeah, we've, we try and, well, we like to own as much of the equipment that we use regularly as possible. Uh, a couple of reasons, I guess, is sort of to keep, even on a small budget thing, you can use equipment that you wouldn't normally be able to afford to rent. And then I think you just get to know your equipment so much better and you just, I don't know, I guess you just know it inside out. Um, at the moment, we've recently upgraded our sort of A camera to a Red Gemini. Um, which, We're the big boys now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that, was a big, that was a big moment doing that. It's been, definitely been on our wish list. Yeah, since we started, really. Yeah, I think we'd been eyeing it up for probably a year and a half or so, and then they just announced the Gemini, so suddenly it was affordable, it was kind of slightly more affordable than the Epic would be. I was just going to say it's got almost a, a sort of a cult following now. The 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 red yeah it does user. A bit. yeah. Um, so yeah, that was very exciting. So that's our big news, I guess, on the equipment front recently. Um, other than that, we've got an FS seven and FS five, which we've used for the last sort of three years that's been you know we've used on everything um yeah so those are our two kind of b cams i guess now 
Um, How do you find the matchup? Uh, like ma matching those up with the, with the red, which is obviously a completely different company. Yeah, using it with the reds is a bit tricky. The FS7 holds up okay as a B cam with the reds. Um, the FS5 is a bit trickier. Yeah, uh, but we've got the Shogun Inferno uh, recorder slash monitor on the FS5, which helps that out a lot as well. Um, and then yeah, other than that, we've got yeah the Inspire Two. Movi Pro, um, and that's probably it from the regular, regular stuff. Lens-wise, yeah. we just kind of either stick with just a Sigma um, for kind of all the shoots that you don't want to be faffing with primes, um, and then for more like a studio shoot, we just we tend to use just our Zeiss primes. Um, but I think that's probably an area where we probably wouldn't branch out so much because what lenses. If you're going to pick some nice lenses, then I think there tends to be the budget to be able to rent in the nice lenses. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, and and there's less to there's less to fiddle with on a lens as well. Like you were saying with a camera, it, you there's instinctive things that you need to be able to use quickly on a camera in order to capture shots sometimes. Whereas the lens, yeah, only so, there's only so many things you can twist <laughs> on a lens to do what exactly. you want it to do. Yeah, and often you've you've created a load of presets in the uh, sub menu somewhere that. If you rented in a F7, say, it would take half an hour just to get all your little settings that you've put deep in the menu like oh, back in. Yeah. How do you find the the jump from your Inspire to the Inspire 2? Because that's that's the X7 camera on the Inspire 2, is it? Yeah, it is. That yeah, I think when we when we first got that, I think we were all quite blown away with the quality and just the jump from the X5 to the X7 because um, all of a sudden it was definitely matching probably the fs7 quality wow yeah it wasn't you don't you didn't get that thing where it's obviously a drone shot you know where the quality is noticeably just different uh it just didn't really have that anymore it just looked like the same camera just in the sky so that was quite cool and then getting um so we got the lens set as well so all of a sudden when you're shooting on a 50 mil up in the sky it's looking a lot more cinematic yeah that That's is pretty cool yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it looks it looks fantastic. Certainly, the test shots that that you put up, uh, we were pretty impressed. I, I I still love the original test shot you did. I think was with your first Inspire, which was of someone on a motorbike. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Was that one of you guys on a motorbike? <laughs> no, that was our friend Jamie, um, who actually used to work with us quite a lot um, on the early, especially like the Red Bull shoots. He was our producer, but um, yeah, that's his bike. Um, yeah, that was really cool. We really, really liked that shot when we did it. He must have been pleased as well because he looked super cool on it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was, yeah. I think he was pretty pleased to put that on his Facebook well. <laughs> I think um, he tends to be our test subject. So I think when we had our first drone, which was incredibly shaky, we um, had him riding a horse, like galloping past the drone as we were like flying past. <laughs> he can ride a horse He's too. He's the go-to for test shots, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, fantastic. What what uh we we have obviously established that you have no formal training in uh well other than the the training of the the internet and trial and error and, and, and music and music, uh what would you say to aspiring filmmakers that might not necessarily want to do it as a career but um, some advice to help them along the way? People are just passionate yeah. about it. I think I mean obviously there is the film school path, but other than taking a similar approach to what we do, I guess just practice, 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 really. Just um, the more shoots and edits that you do, 
the best you'll get. Um, I think we've learned numerous skills, especially on the editing front from YouTube. Um, yeah. Like After Effects bits, like making titles, you know, animations. I think we're just watching just so much stuff on Vimeo. And like we used to watch every skate film account, just having all this knowledge of what looks good, what doesn't look good, how have they filmed that. Um, so just, just putting in yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah basically. It definitely, yeah. I mean, it took years and years to get at all good at filming. Uh, we didn't even know what editing was. Our first couple of videos, we thought you edited in camera, so we had to film each shot sequentially. <laughs> well, like, that is one way to do it. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> if, if we didn't land a trick, we had to rewind the tape to the exact point where we'd started filming and do another take of it. I think just um, for fun, you should go back to that method and just make... One of the things that, uh, that I, I think people... Uh, I've, got, I've got one person in, in mind in particular who massively pa- uh, passionate about, about film and, and what film is and means to them, but so caught up in only wanting to pursue those big, meaningful type productions that it becomes very hard to ever really get off of the ground as a filmmaker. And well, like we kind of alluded to earlier at the beginning, we just do anything anything that involves giving somebody and being paid something for a moving picture you would do because it was a way to start building up the repertoire and learning and i think maybe some some people are a little bit too precious and in, in terms of the the kind of filming that they, they they do and it tends to be without wanting to broad brush too much it tends to be often when folks come out of, out of film school because they have this preconceived idea about exactly the kind of films they're going to make yeah. yeah, I can definitely understand that. Um, I think we were the same as you. We, it, For the first few years, we literally had to take whatever was you know, handed our way. Um, you just yeah, you don't really have the luxury of being precious at all about what you're saying yes to. Um, and that is, again, like part of the way that you learn and get better is doing all those sort of super low budget, very unglamorous shoots where you just hone your craft, I guess, and... And also just getting initial work, because I think, I mean, we we never really market ourselves. It's always word of mouth from other people and other people that we've worked with that um, kind of brings in the new work. And that wouldn't happen unless we Did do work, take yeah. that initial things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah I, th- I think it is definitely about yeah not being precious about, especially you know, first off, um, a job's a job, really. Now that you're in the position that you're in, what is what are the kinds of films that you really like to get your teeth into if you if you can choose i think nowadays probably much more directed kind of slightly more narrative driven stuff rather than the sort of events that we cut our teeth doing i think it's yes it's more creative storyboarded um often quite creative shoots that we've done a few of this year that I think we've all massively enjoyed and want to do more of. Yeah. But then similarly, it's it's still in kind of every single... It's, it's still in such a broad area. So we, it's still kind of fashion stuff and car stuff and um, just kind of brand, um, brand films. And yeah, I don't think we... We're not at the point where we want to kind of single ourselves yeah. into a single yeah. market. Have you ever done any documentary stuff? Not really, no. We've 
did a, I mean, it's not a documentary, it was about seven minutes long, but <laughs> I guess short documentary about a Formula 2 driver, uh, I think I was in April this year. Um, I think that's actually like one of the longest things we've ever done, Yeah, weirdly. Um, we're so used now to be doing 90 second max stuff. Um, so just super it's actually sleek, quite a different skill to be able to, yeah, to be able to craft a so even seven minute film is a very different skill to doing a 90 second promo. I think that they both have their own challenges. Uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to explain the kind of work that is involved in producing something so short and slick and getting the right message across. Yeah, it's completely different skills and especially the longer stuff, getting that ebb and flow. It's not just a sort of build to the end. You need these sort of, yeah, wave-like sort troughs. of, yeah, peaks and troughs. One other thing that I know that we have in, well, I, I'm guessing we have in common is possibly a love of Land Rovers, given that you have a Land Rover as your main bus for doing your film shoots. How did how did that come about or is that one of yours particular passion? Or just a convenient vehicle. Um, it was right when we started. It, I think yeah. we well officially it's Luke's uh, Land Rover. Um, so yeah, it's probably yeah, perhaps five six years ago we got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. I don't know. We've always liked Land Rovers, and it seemed like a, an amazing like sort of shoot vehicle to have. Um, it stands out. It definitely yeah. stands out, and it's it's probably been the best marketing thing we've ever done we, even now every shoot we go on someone will comment on the car um we've had been driving down the motorway and had people instagram us to <laughs> oh that's brilliant truck. um so yeah it's been definitely one of the best things we bought but yeah. Byron, it's definitely but, not ideal though for a long road trip oh no no it's horrendous <laughs> but Barnes Land Rovers I think has been used in more shoots for various clients than than any other Land Rover that I know sometimes as the model yeah yeah I bet yeah uh, especially nowadays now they're not producing them anymore it's uh, very desirable things mine's in a slightly more sorry state than yours at the moment because it's in bits in the garage <laughs> being being refurbed but... <laughs> That sounds familiar. <laughs> As most Land Rovers eventually will be at some point in their life. Oh yeah, definitely. Now I'm gonna ask we, um... I'm gonna ask you a question, but you've got you've got time to look this up. Instagram has become over the last few years, especially in the last year, one of our biggest tools for business like yourself. Uh we've never advertised our company, it's all word of mouth. Uh, but Instagram for showcasing, particularly our pictures, um, is a really useful tool. But we find it when the accounts we follow, people like yourself, uh, give us a lot of inspiration. Is can you give us a couple of accounts that people should go and check out? You you can. I'll give you time to check on your phone. You don't need to answer the second. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, yeah, definitely ones. I mean, we've got a, a filmer friend called Stefan Knight. Uh, who has a great Instagram account. He's a, well, he's primarily like a Movi Pro uh, operator. operator, but he's, yeah, got got a great account. He's constantly doing really uh, interesting looking, like amazing shoots. Like he's, I think he's just the busiest man that I think I know. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a good one. Um, I'm trying to think. So, yeah, it's a good question. 
That's right. We'll we'll let you we'll let you uh, mull over that while we uh, okay. while we, we carry on. I, I knew it would be one you'd probably have to look on your phone because we we know we've got yeah. certain accounts that uh, you know we just go to all the time. I, I recognise, but don't can't necessarily you can't remember, remember the, name. the name of them. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, one shoot in particular you did because he is uh, or what was a guest on the podcast about a year ago, and that was Sean Conway. I think I'm not wrong in saying that you you filmed the barber shoot with him. Yeah, we did. What, uh, what that that? I really loved been... really loved that. I thought the look and feel and like almost like the texture of the film in that was was just perfect for what you were trying to achieve. Yeah, that was a really fun project. Actually, that was um, must have been three four years ago. Um, Yes, that was for Barber. Um, it's for I think it was a campaign they're doing called Heritage of Adventure. Um, it was like a sort of a small capsule collection or something of their clothing. Um, so yeah, they got Sean involved, and we met up in the Lake District um, as a one-day shoot. Um, one day, windy. Yeah, one day we got yeah, obviously pre-dawn. hadn't hadn't recceed. We didn't have time to recce, so we just turned up. Um, Sean knew the area pretty well, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, and yeah, we just found the nearest mountain and headed <laughs> up. And we had every sort of weather conceived. We had sort of pretty much gale force winds, uh, rain, but then the afternoon it turned into this like amazing sort of sunset scene. So we had it all, and yeah, that's probably why it doesn't look like one day. I mean, it was yeah. perfect for the for what you wanted to achieve. Yeah, the weather perfect. was ideal. It was great, yeah. I think that was GH4, Panasonic GH4 um, on our Movi M5. Um, and then we had, I don't know if we had the Inspire, we had some drone shots. But I, don't, I think it was a, our big 8-rotor thing at yeah, that point. it would have been. Amazing. The, the one shot in there, I like the concept of it, of him taking the pictures, but the one shot in there that always stuck with me was the from inside his Land Rover, the coming out the window. Oh, uh, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, we... Just came with that at the time. Um, we wanted to do yeah one of those gimbal shots where you're not quite sure how it's done. Um, and then, yeah, found this really nice-looking lane up the hill. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think I don't know, I think it was just one take. Um, <laughs> we were so pushed for time that we didn't have time to redo anything. Can you tell us uh, anything about the new work that you're doing with Barbara? I think I saw you put up some pictures recently. They look. It looked very, very cool in the sort of cutting room and of design and. Oh yeah, we did. That was a sort of set of. I was just for Instagram stories. Uh, a campaign, I think it was ten films sort of split into five Instagram stories each, um, all about how some of their new collection is inspired by some of the original pieces from Barber, you know, decades and decades ago. Um, so it's kind of looking back at their past and how that's influencing their sort of newest stuff is it out already um yeah it's been sort of running purely on instagram stories it's not even oh, on sort of maybe there. that's why i missed it so once it's gone it's gone <laughs> oh no um yeah so i don't know if they're all been run yet or if there's still a few left but hopefully they end up somewhere at some point yeah, yeah. but that yeah that was quite fun um yeah they're really nice guys to work with now I've got another I know we're going into like every advert that you've ever made but another one that I really <laughs> like but um, was the one with the the Audi car and the the crop that the the uh, yeah how, I don't even know how, what how did that about. come about that was a really interesting one so it's um it was through an agency who they run the Audi kind of monthly magazine that is sent out to all the customers um and so they 
they were sent no that's what the the new Luna rover i think is made by audi um i'm not sure if it's gone to the moon yet but it's definitely going at some point um and that's so the, the space one that wasn't the crop circle one. oh the crop circle one yeah oh. no I, d- I don't know about the moon one <laughs> <laughs> yeah scrap that <laughs> a different audi project so yeah that was i think i was aware at the time but it was you and luke and it was like super intense yeah. shoot like overnight did you have to hire yeah. someone to make crop circle effectively crop circles <laughs> so it was a guy who i think that's all he does is makes crop circles <laughs> um, i think he does it he does it for quite a few brands just for um kind of marketing tools but he was known kind of in the crop circle community as a bit of a legend. <laughs> I can't believe you've just used that line. Uh, he was someone was known in the crop circle community. Carry yeah, on, carry on. It was, it was quite an interesting evening finding out about the whole culture. Um, but yeah, it was kind of shot through the night. So to try and keep it as authentic as possible, um, it was trying to be traditional. So in this farmer's um, field who... He knew it was all happening and he kind of signed it all off, but to keep it as um, real as possible, it was kind of done in the dead of night with almost zero light. So if we kind of wanted to film when it was dark, we had to be on these really kind of dim torch lights um, to try and get the shots that we could. And then... Didn't you sleep in a tent? We slept in a tent for about two hours and then I think they finished it around 5 a.m., um, just as the sun was rising, and so we had to get those kind of big sunrise shots of the thing when it was finished. Very impressive. It was very cool. It's very cool. But I've uh, I would love to be involved in a shoot where you have to hire someone to do that with a crop. What, to make crop circles. Yeah, to make crop circles. <laughs> Maybe we should well, we plan know the guy it. Now, if you want, yeah. if you want his, his number. You've got a guy. <laughs> I got a guy who can do that. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> what is the I mean, maybe maybe it's this one. What what is the the strangest shoot that you've had to do that you've had a commission for um crop circles that's number definitely one one of them uh that's definitely up there um potentially the one that we're on at the minute but i don't know if we could talk is that about. top secret at the moment yeah we're doing one at the moment it's, it's a spoof luxury watch advert okay so yeah we're trying to go super high-end um sort of style but it's all a joke so that's quite funny trying to make that at the moment so Hugo's sort of made a really sort of serious, cool sounding, you know, like those classic watch adverts. Um, but it's all a complete joke. So it's quite fun, actually. Um, we, we had one a few months ago, didn't actually go ahead, but we were researching for a few days um, how to hire miniature pigs. Um, like the teacup and, pigs. And how they can, how much they can act. Because in the brief, they sort of, they had to do certain expressions on their faces. Um, <laughs> So we were researching a lot into miniature pigs for a, for a week or so. Um, I think they were going to earn more than we were. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like they're very expensive, miniature pigs. Well, I, I want to know the answer to that question. How much can they act? Uh, not that much, it turns out. Um, it was slightly limited what they could do. Yeah. <laughs> In the script, they had things like the pig had to look concerned. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that didn't didn't turn out to be possible. Yeah, I I don't know if there will ever come a time in our career where we have to look at hiring miniature pigs. But if there does it come might, a time, but the I thing will, is, it might do. Maybe, maybe. We, we, again, they'll have the contact. You got so the contact. They've done the research. Yeah. They've done three days of research already. 
Yeah, if you need pigs or crops up, we're, <laughs> we're here. Um, is there anything that you have uh, coming up that you can talk about that you're you're looking forward to? Yeah, we've got a quite big Red Bull music shoot, which is starting tomorrow and is sort of on and off for the whole of November into the start of December. Um, six six shoots. Um, can't I don't think we can say much more than that, okay. but it's it's going to be quite fun. Um, that's in London, Bristol, and Glasgow. Um, the events have been announced. Anyway, it'll be on Red Bull yeah. TV. We, we don't want to get you in trouble. No. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that will be coming out. Yeah, on Red Bull. Um, yeah, in sort of November, December. So that should be cool. Um, and then yeah, we're planning a couple more shoots. I'm trying to think. Um, Anything up in Scotland? Another... I was going to say you've got Glasgow seems to where you go go to, but do you go any further north to the nicer parts of Scotland? No, we've never done a shoot. Uh, actually, we did one right at the start, right in the Highlands, um, but. In the past five years, we haven't been any further north than Glasgow. No, we haven't. Normally. We've pitched many ideas to kind of drive around Scotland, but annoyingly, none of them have pulled pulled off yet. Yeah, the North Coast Five Hundred we wanted to do for a while. Do something on that. We were we were just on that actually, uh, really? like twice in the last twice year. in the last year of filming up there. Not actually on the route, but you've got to take the route to get to the locations. Yeah, yeah, we're dying to go up there. So that's lovely. Yeah. Fingers crossed, something will come up where you can come up right up there. Well, gents, it's been fantastic having you on. I think it'll, it'll oh, be the, great. I, I need great. the Instagram. I need oh, the Instagram. Oh, sorry, accounts. sorry. Daryl's oh, coming no, back yeah. on the Instagram. <laughs> Meanwhile, they haven't been looking at the phone. No, they've been no. answering questions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wait a minute. I mean, there are the, there are a few of those um, filmmaking accounts like filmup.co. I mean, Freefly is definitely a good um, one. Actually, yeah, anything Freefly put up because they always they they love a good repo. So there's always kind of proper kind of Hollywood Hollywood films that have behind the scenes shots of how a shot was done with a with a Movi or with an Alta. I like that. Yeah, they always put up really good content. A similar one is film filmmakers, but with that is F I L M A K R S. Um, that's another huge sort of behind the scenes type one that we follow quite religiously. I, I was just I was just going to ask you actually. Well, you can carry on looking at Instagram accounts. How is your your? I know you've just moved into a new premises and you've got a new music studio. How is it? Yeah, it's really nice. It's um. So I'd in the past I'd just been making the music kind of at my part of the desk in the office, just with headphones and my little keyboard and um. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the ideal situation. Um, so to have my own space and actually play music out the speakers is quite revolutionary for me. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we've started offering kind of voiceover sessions, and um, yeah, it's it's a really nice space to be able to bring people into. That's actually quite quite handy for us because sometimes we have uh, we have clients that we have to do voiceovers, but they're all down in in down south, down south in uh, London. Where exactly are you guys right, based? Yeah. We're in Peckham, so southeast London. Okay, there um, you go. There you go. But yeah, we're we've done a few sessions this week actually for yeah clients that aren't yeah for different production companies coming in and using you know, it as a VO space for an hour or two. So yeah, we're definitely pushing that quite a lot. That's br- that's that's brilliant. And what what's it like having uh, a fresh big office space? It's great. Yeah, we started um, off in main... a bedroom at one, at one point in the past. Yeah, that same same as us. We were. At our parents' house for the first three years, I think. 
Um, so yeah, and then we moved into a sort of shared workspace, a sort of big sort of shared room with a few other similar sort of one or two man bands, companies. Uh, and then in January, last January moved uh, into yeah this space, which is yeah, a real game changer, having your own proper office and now having this mute year, it's really come on leaps and bounds in the past year. Yeah. Well, the, the pictures that you put up look really, really smart. It, it, it does look, it has the look from the outside of the same quality as your films now. Oh, and not that I'm making a judgment on whatever it looked like before, because I have no idea what the previous <laughs> place looked like. But the new pictures that you put up of your new office, it looks it looks really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're very very pleased with it. Yeah. Well, gents, it's been great to have you on. I'm sure a lot of people will have um, taken inspiration and probably some notes uh, off the back of this podcast. It's also great just to have a chance to speak to other people who who make who make film and and great film as well. Uh, like we said at the start, uh, you know we've we've watched your stuff from well for the last few years and uh, taken a lot of inspiration ourselves from the kind of uh, films that you've made, and probably uh, not knowingly stolen little ideas that we've seen just the same as we all look at Vimeo looking looking for ideas and, and concepts. So yeah, thank you very much for the the content that that you put out, and I can't wait to see what what comes in the future. Oh, thanks. Thanks, thanks. for having us on. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been yeah, really fun. No problem. And that is it for today. Until a week's time when we give you our pre-Christmas kit rundown and a bit of a news update, get some stories from Daryl from his trip to Austria. Don't forget to enter the competition for this podcast, which is to win the latest edition of the Hornady Reloading Manual. All we wanted you to do was go onto your podcast app and leave us a review. Preferably positive, but we'll take criticism too. So don't be afraid. Any review is welcome because we can always learn from it. And I think that's it for me. I can't pad it out so much when I don't have someone else to talk to. So we hope you, you enjoyed our double whammy of a podcast today. And we will be speaking to you soon.